The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, which is found in your pew Bible on page 1005, verses 1 through 10. Now even the first covenant had had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section, a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the body, the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to these arrangements, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. So back in February, um, our family made a trip to Nashville for Graham's birthday. We went up, we toured the Hermitage, we did state capitol, we um, um, did a few other things, and uh, on the way out, we stopped by Centennial Park to see the Parthenon, which I had never been to. And... I was glad I went for one reason. I wondered why in the world there was a replica of the Parthenon in Nashville, and that helped explain it. As uh, we walked through the museum, and they explained at the centennial, this was before Nashville was known more as a country music town. It was a um, Athens of the South, and very helpful for an Alabama boy to get a little bit of you know Tennessee culture. But it was very neat to see this replica of this ancient Greek temple. Um, I'm sure many of you have been. Yeah, that seems like something that every school would have as a um, field trip, but maybe look it up, Google it if you haven't been. But anyway, so we go through, and it is great. It's great to see the columns and the big building, and I've, I've read about stuff. I've never been to Greece, haven't seen this. But then there were also a lot of the relief images of the deities and things, and we have seen that in the British Museum. Some of the originals are there, and to see the replica and how it's exactly what we, we saw. So it was neat to think this is what ancient pagan worship would have been like. And to go into this building, and one of the things that's only been, I guess, in the past several years, something newer than the building itself, is the giant replica of the image, uh, the, the idol of um, um, the goddess Athena. There she is, really, really large uh, statue of um, this goddess wearing her toga with her shield and her Greek helmet and her spear and all that. And um, 
it, it, it shows us what ancient pagan worship would have looked like, but also thought of how very different it was from the tabernacle. Um, I've also gotten to be in a replica of the tabernacle. Took a youth group to a you know, place, and it's out in this field, and it's a very different experience to go in behind this tent, which would have been kind of the courtyard area. And there, there's something about it that has the, the opening at the top but the sides that really makes you feel cut off from everything else. And there, there wasn't an interest that there was a, a, a area to go beyond that, which is the area of the holy area. It's the place where the sacrifices took place. And it was um, a veil there. And there was another veil, another cloth that, that separated the main um, holy of holies from the holy area. It was something that, that just reinforced you have to, um, you're cut off from here, you're cut off from here, you're cut off from here. There's this very strong understanding of separation of the, the place where God was said to dwell and everything else. It was very different from the idea of going in and looking at this, this idolatrous statue. That is there by God's design to teach us something. That's what's being told here. We looked last week at how there was the, um, um, the, the heavenly reality that was shown to Moses that was then replicated in the tabernacle. But the tabernacle was to teach us to say something about what was going on. Um, so we read in verse 8 that it says the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open. In other words, the Holy Spirit through the architecture of the temple is telling us something about God and his character. And what that temple by having us separated and separated and separated is telling us is God is holy. God is different from us. He's separate from us. He's, he's distinct. The, the, the pagan idol of Athena is very much the, the religion of our heart. It's our natural religion. We want to take ourselves and make ourselves really big and really strong and really smart and living forever. We want to take who we are and amplify it and say, that's what God is like. God is like me who talks really loud and has enough strength to do what I would want to do. That's why when you relive that argument and the things you should have said and you think about it, God agrees with you 100%. That's why if I start thinking about my political views and what everybody ought to do and what the world should look like, it's amazing how much God lines up exactly with what I would do if I was in charge. Because we're idolaters in nature. We take ourselves and say, this is what God is. And the God of the Bible is completely different from us. It's not an order of magnitude greater. It's a different category. God is God. His ways are not our ways. The heaven, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways above our ways. He, he is completely different from us in power and ability. I mean, just all the things he made by the power of his word are things that we could never even do with all of our energy and all of our collective ability. 
We can't even imagine a color that doesn't exist. And God created all of this. God is glorious, and he is beyond us, and he is pure, and he is just, and he is all of these things that we are not and is separate from us. And therefore, we who have rebelled against holiness, we who are finite, could not comprehend, could not be in his presence. The separation is for our own good, our own safety, because God is holy, and we are not, and holiness cannot allow unholiness. It's not a matter of he's so delicate our sin would bother him, or it's that he's so moody he might strike out against us. It's that darkness cannot stand in the presence of light. It's a matter of categories to be in the same presence. It's heat and cold aren't in the same room. Heat puts away the cold, light puts away the dark, and holiness dissipates unholiness. And so Moses is told... You cannot see my face and live. No man may look on the face of God and see. God's glory would be so overwhelming that he would be destroyed. That's why fear of the Lord is truly fear. There is something very frightful to think of, a God who is all-powerful, who every breath, every heartbeat is under his control, and to think he is outside of our control. And he is a God who reveals himself in such a way that we often read the Scripture and we scratch our heads and say, what kind of God is this? This isn't the way I would do it, but it's a God who is unlike us and yet is good and just. So God is holy, and everything about this tabernacle screamed holiness, especially this veil. All right, I'm going to teach you a little bit about biblical interpretation through rhetorical strategy. We'll throw that in catechism questions too. So verses nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, uses a structure that is called a chiasm. It's this idea of it's making an X. It's starting out, and it'll make a statement that's paralleled by another statement. It goes in and makes a p- statement that's paralleled by another, and what's in the center, it draws attention to. Let me show you what, how this works. There's an earthly place of holiness. A tent was prepared. All right, so it describes what is in that first section, verse 2. The first section in which there's a lampstand and a table and a bread of presence gives the description of what's there, and then it gives us the name. It's the holy place. And then it describes a third thing. Behind the second curtain, the second curtain is what's drawing our attention. There's a curtain there. And then it gives us the name that parallels the name of the other, It's called the most holy place. And then it goes on to describe the contents, the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, um, the golden urn, Aaron's staff, the manna. In other words, it's it's paralleling the, the, the furniture, the name, and in the center it's saying, but it's divided, it's separated. There is a veil that separates. God is holy. God is separated. There is a veil. So the first thing we see is that we worship a God who is not just like us, made really big. We worship a God who is unlike us. He is eternal, everlasting, glorious. And he is something we would never approach the way we would um, w- without him graciously revealing to us who he is. And that is part of what's being shown in this veil, that God 
is not approached in a way he has not shown us. He, he, you don't just approach him the way you would approach another. You approach him only in the way he says to approach me. You look at the veil, it's much like a door. There's a gateway that's going in. Here's the thing about a door. A door is a, it's an entrance. You, you welcome friends and children. You tell children, close the door. I mean, there, the door is a way you get in and out. There's access. This is what we have through the veil. There's access. But a door is also a barrier. You close it. You lock it. It can also be really secure. And that's part of what the veil is. It's access, but it's also blocking you from coming in because you don't come in just the way you want to. You only access through the regulations for worship, the way God has said. God has given access to this holy of holies only through his high priesthood. The description of this is given in Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. They had approached in a way God had said not to approach. They, they did not do what was right. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in the way Aaron shall come into this place. And he describes he's going to sacrifice a bull. He's going to put on his holy clothing. He's going to wash himself. And then, and only then, after he has washed himself and prepared himself and offered sacrifices for his own sin, does he dare come one day a year to offer sacrifices for the people of God. This is the way you come in, only the way God has described now, if any of you know anything about Tommy White, you know he talks to horses, and he listens to horses, and he teaches people to listen to horses, and people don't listen to the way he tells you to talk to horses, get thrown from horses and get hurt. Tommy's brother, Terry, um, does the same with dogs. Scout has been a bad boy. So I have been um, trained a little bit by Terry in how to make Scout a good boy. We're getting there. Graham, Graham is walking. Graham's doing, we're, we're doing that. But there's certain things he said, you know, like the dog can't pull you. You have to be in the lead. He has to know you're the pack leader. Dogs are pack animals. They're looking for the pack leader. We've had to change feeding habits because Scout has to know that pack leader provides food. And Scout is also losing weight. So we're, we're working with Scout there's, you know, you have to talk to Scout in a way that doesn't sound like an injured animal in the woods, but rather the pack leader. And so that's, this is some of the lessons Graham and I are working on, and Scout is getting better. You dare not approach a horse or a dog in the way you want to. You approach them according to their character. How foolish we are to think that we can approach Almighty God in the way we want to rather than according to his own character. If I wouldn't go to such an animal as a dog without kind of realizing this is the way I need to deal because I don't say, well, you know, I really just want to do this thing and realize that there's going to be consequences to me saying I'm going to set the terms of my approach. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to set the agenda. But isn't that the way we often come before God? I'm going to pray the way I want to pray. 
I'm going to worship when I want to worship. I'm going to pray the way I want to. I'm going to worship the way we want to. How many churches base worship not on how God has called us to worship, but on what makes me feel like I've had an experience? I'm the basis of worship of God. Getting thrown from a horse would be lightly compared to what we've seen with God. You reach out your hand to the altar and you're struck dead. God is holy and his regulations are for us. He's saying, I'm holy. This is the way you come to me. This is the way you approach me. This is the way you come before me. You don't make this up. You're not taking yourself and making yourself large and, and saying, this is how I worship and how I want to worship and what makes me feel worshipful. And much less do we say that I can approach a God I have rebelled and sinned against and I have fallen short of his laws and say, I'm going to set the terms for how I can make things right. And how often we do that. I've sinned against God, but here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to make it up. I'm going to come to church three times in a row. I'm going to give something. And I'm, going to, I'm going to help that person. We set our own terms of how we're going to make things right with a holy God. And he said, no. Everything is here to say, I am holy, and this is how you come before a holy God in worship and in getting forgiveness and asking for things. And all that I am, we come into his holiness the way he has called us to come in and the way he's graciously showed us. And all of this, he's saying, was pointing to something greater. Here is the good news. He has provided a way of access. He hasn't said you're closed off. He hasn't sewn the veil shut and said you're no longer welcome. He hasn't said no one comes into my presence. All of this was pointing to a time to come. And I love the way he takes this. He says that, that outer court, that holy place, that was a barrier. That was a door that was closed until the restoration, until that time Christ himself came and entered into the true temple and now has brought us a new covenant. All of that represents the two covenants, the covenant that is a barrier that goes through these regulations and this priesthood, and now that tent is gone. And what we have is left is the holy of holies, and in the New Testament, it is though we've entered into that, and not just that, but the true temple in heaven that is the model for this tabernacle. How did that happen? He doesn't get into all the details of the sacrifice that's offered for the people after he's offered his own sacrifices as the high priest. But one of those is a sacrifice that the sins are placed on it and it's sent outside the camp. It's a goat that goes out and takes on the curse. Part of it is the blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat, the, the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. He describes that holy of holies, the very presence of God. And listen to what he says it's a, it has in there. Uh, the altar of incense, this is actually outside that area, but it's connected with it because it's the prayers of the people. And the Ark of the Covenant, which shows God's promise to us in which it has the manna, God providing food for his people in the wilderness, the staff that budded. This is showing Aaron's true priesthood and the offering that is accepted because he is the one appointed by God. And the tablet of the covenant, his law itself, and all of that's in the Ark of the Covenant, and above that is the cherubim of glory, but they're not images of God or anything that's to be worshipped. And none of the things in the Ark are things to be um, reverenced as though they themselves are holy. They're only signs of what God has done for his people. 
But over this and over the, the cherubim, they're overshadowing what's called the mercy seat. It, it's the covering of the ark. It's kind of a dual use of that name. It's the covering for the, the ark itself, but it's also the covering of your sin. It's the place of where reconciliation is made. It is the place of atonement, and it's empty. God's presence, his glory dwells there, but there's no image there that is to represent God. That is where the blood is to be thrown. Is it not amazing? You go to the Parthenon, you see an image of a god, a goddess, and you knew that what you did there is you went to there and you offered sacrifices and asked for a good sailing. You asked for victory over your enemies. You asked for good harvest, something to bless you. You ask for this and you give because the gods are hungry and they need your worship and they're jealous and they want you. But Athena could care less about the way you treat your neighbor. Thor couldn't care anything about the way you do business, if you're honest or not could care less about a relationship with you, just wanted stuff from you, and that's all of our idols. They just want from you. The very presence of God is called the seat of mercy. It's called the place of atonement. It's a God who demands that you live and love one another and obey his law and follow him. And when we fail to do that, His very presence is represented at a place that's called mercy, reconciliation, atonement. The very heart of worship is that he makes peace with us, and the way he does it is that God himself goes into the Holy of Holies with his own blood to sprinkle on this place, his own blood making peace and reconciling us. Our God, the very heart of this is the idea is that not only is he just and he's mighty and he's holy and he's greater than beyond anything we can imagine, but he's merciful and he has stooped to us to bring forgiveness. And when he goes to offer his blood, the sacrifice outside the camp on the cross, shedding his blood to take it into the true holies in the heaven, We are told in the Gospels that the veil in the temple is rent from top to bottom. We've been brought into this holiness. God is holy. You don't choose the way you're reconciled to him, but he has appointed a way that you come to him. And the way he has appointed is the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in that? If you are, you have peace with God. You have reconciliation And we come and we celebrate and we worship, not worshiping things in here, but letting everything in this place remind us of this new covenant he has made with us, that we worship one who is before the very presence of God and his presence comes to us, and we eat something greater than the manna. We we remember the covenant he's made with us in our baptism. We hear his covenant reclaimed to us Sunday after Sunday, and we remember what he has done for us and accomplished, this God who is at heart, a God who reconciles us and is present with us. 
who will one day be with him. Would you please stand and let us state what we believe through the words of the Apostles' Creed.